0: I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter, and by the way, this is also a crossover with our Impossible State podcast, I've asked my colleagues Dr. Victor Cha and Dr. Steve Morrison to come on today to talk about what South Korea is doing to fight COVID-19 and to trace what's going on among their population and could it be applied to what's happening in the United States. Victor, could you tell us a little bit first about your piece in foreign affairs, which is in the current website? It's on the front, front page of the website. South Korea offers a lesson in best practices is the title of the piece. And tell us what you said in the piece and why it has meaning for the United States. And then, Steve, I want you to jump in and talk about why this piece is important for us to be considering as we fight COVID-19 here in the United States.
1: Well, first, for the listeners, let me just run through a couple of quick metrics. So Korea and the United States discovered their first COVID cases basically within a day of each other. South Korea now has barely cracked the 10,000 mark in terms of number of total infections, while the United States is ascending up to over 600,000 probably by by the end of this week, if not sooner. South Korea obviously has a smaller population, it's one-seventh the size, but even if you scale that up... That's 70,000 infections versus 600,000. More importantly, South Korea slowed the infection rate fairly early in early March and has tested more people per capita than the United States, about two to three times more. And probably the issue you hear about most in the news, masks, test kits, PPE, South Korea is producing a surplus of these things for their own population. And they're now exporting 750,000 test kits to, to the United States. South Korea, I think, is not just South Korea, but if you look at Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, these countries have generally dealt with this better than we we have certainly here in the United States. And I think there are sort of two big lessons. The first one is that you can turn this around in the sense that I think there's widespread acknowledgement that uh, President Trump delayed, lost a whole month in February, and moved way too late. Certainly, A month later than the South Koreans, the South Koreans declared an emergency about a a national emergency about a month before the United States did. But the first lesson is you can turn this around. Even President Moon, leader of South Korea, was being harshly criticized in the first few weeks of the crisis because it seemed like he was not moving quickly enough. There was actually a petition signed by over a million Koreans online wanting to oust Moon from office because they thought that he wasn't dealing with it. Quickly enough, and that he was like Trump, he was saying everything's okay. And then he actually went and hosted lunch for the cast members of the Oscar winning movie Parasite the same day that they found this big super spreader church event. But he turned it around, and you know, so Trump can too, I think. And then the second is, you know, and I think this will, Steve, I'm sure has a lot to say on this. This is. That, you know, South Korea not only has produced a lot of test kits and masks and things of this nature, but they've also leveraged technology in terms of contact tracing and social distancing that has enabled them not to completely shut down the economy, complete lockdown like we have here in the United States. In fact, Koreans are going to the polls to vote this week, uh, and they're doing so with masks and gloves on. But still um it's a sign that they're they're going forward and trying to carry on life in a semi normal status but with the use of technology in the in the form of cell phone apps to do contact tracing and uh, social distancing.
0: Steve you want to jump in on this?
2: Sure. First of all, I just wanted to praise Vic for for the peace and foreign affairs and for the earlier podcast. I mean this Korea case is so important and Vic, you've done a great job in in bringing it to light in terms of what was so distinctive and important about what Korea has done. On this issue of mobile apps and uh, use of mobile technology, it has become super hot issue. My colleagues Anna Carroll and Samantha Stroman are coming out with a short paper the next couple of days that reviews how these technologies figure in Korea and several other Asian states and what it means here you just look at what's happening here in the United States There's a certain inevitability that these mobile apps and use of mobile technology is going to be at the center of planning and executing the transition that lies just ahead in order to ease the controls, ease the social distancing and allow for people to return to work and schools. You have to introduce some level of testing and surveillance and contact tracing. And this is going to play a role. And if you look at what we've heard just in the last week or two, Apple and Google are partnering. These are rivals, arch rivals, partnering to explore what's possible. You have regional groupings of states in the East and the West, Coasts that are talking about how are they going to group together to find solutions. You have no fewer than five groups come out with plans for the transition. Hopkins, Center for American Progress, AEI, Harvard, The economist Paul Romer, all of them point to the need for the use of creative technologies at a local level. Now, there's no shortage of issues here. Uh, We need more data that this actually can be done effectively. I think Korea and others can give us some of that data, but we're going to need to ground truth this in the United States. It's not a substitute for the ground troops, for the people that are going to need to be deployed across this country. Estimated numbers are around 100,000. There's going to have to be civil liberty protections. People are going to be very concerned about privacy, civil liberties. The polling shows there's great skepticism, but leadership is needed in bringing people around to the idea. Americans have adjusted to new technologies as long as they feel like their interests are being safeguarded and recognized as part of this. And if they understand that agreeing to comply and be make use of these technologies, run the app share their some of their data, but make sure that their data is anonymized and kept and protected and deleted after a certain number of days. I believe, like Victor, there's an inevitability to this, and there's an opportunity to score and to recover and to re- change the way people think and act about this. The last point I'd make is we need a neutral host to hold this sort of data. People have talked about what kind of organization might that be. And also, let's not underestimate This is an environment that is deeply divided uh, into tribes. Culturally, we have weaponized social media, widespread disinformation and distrust of public health, of science, of authorities. And you're going to have you're in order to win the trust and confidence of people, you're going to have to cut through all of that in order to get people's attention and win their confidence that this kind of technology can be used. Well,
0: let's talk about that for a minute with such widespread distrust with such polarization in this country, not just political polarization, but class polarization, racial polarization. Like you said, there's polarization among people who believe in science and those who don't. And then of course, there's privacy issues. How are we going to adopt a system like this that really depends on us sharing a lot about ourselves? I mean, you
1: know, for all the reasons Steve said, and Andrew, as you implied in your question, it's not going to be easy. But, I mean, there are are trade-offs in life, right? And, you know, we've been locked down now for going on almost six weeks. I imagine many Americans are not happy with being locked down. Everybody wants to reopen. We want the economy to be started. But absent, you know, a, a universal testing regime, which we don't have in the United States, Absent a vaccine, which is not likely to come for a year to 18 months, if we still want to reopen the economy, we have to have um, some form of contact tracing that will enable us to feel confident when we uh, go back to our jobs or take the bus or take the subway, things of that nature. The notion of the sort of, as Steve talked about, these sort of app-based programs that in some cases, they, you know, they locate you, but in other cl- cases, all they do is store you know the, uh, the contacts that you've had with others over a tw- 14 to 21 day period. And these things can stay on your phone. You don't have to give them up to anybody until there's a situation in which either you have tested positive or somebody you might have been contact- in contact with have tested positive. And that's when you have to consent to upload your contact data. The way to think about it in the broader society is, yes, that's an invasion of privacy to some extent and something Americans inherently chafe at. On the other hand, these sorts of technologies are providing a public good to all of us so that we can feel more confident and more safe as we try to reopen society. And the question is, is does that public good outweigh the temporary, most likely temporary infringement on certain aspects of privacy. As Steve said, you know, data can be encrypted. It doesn't necessarily have to go to a central server. Initially, that's a trade-off. I mean, there is a public good associated with good contact tracing in today's environment. And there is a cost in terms of an infringement on privacy. And, you know, as you and as Steve said, it's going to be up to political leaders and, and others to make the case to the American public that that trade off is not only worth it, but it may be inevitable.
0: Steve, you mentioned a, a neutral host. I, explain what you would mean by a neutral host who would hold all the data, process it, keep it so we, you know, the government could understand who's where.
2: Well, we've had scandals over the abuse of, of private information by groups like. Facebook, right, in the 2016 election cycle. We've got a great distrust of the federal government. You could come up with an entity like the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, ASTO, you know, some kind of independent group that's a nonprofit, trusted nonprofit organization that might take on this responsibility. Um, I think there's probably many different options. There could be a network of such groups, but I just want to Step back for a moment, I mean, to amplify a bit of what Victor said that I totally agree with. Look, there are things that can be done. You can make the system transparent. You can limit the collection of data security and storage of the data to within the United States. You can make sure the data is deleted within 45 days and, and anonymized. You can put prohibitions on sharing of the data with third parties or sale of the data. You can limit or prohibit sharing with state and local government agencies or with federal agencies. There's any number of controls. The point here is that you're trying to tell an individual that in order to get back safely to a normal life, that there needs to be a smoke alarm in your neighborhood and that you as an individual and your family members and your neighbors need to be able to feel confident and safe going out into their neighborhoods and transiting to work or schools or churches or wherever they're going. And yes, there's a trade off, but you're going to do the maximum extent possible to make sure that you're respecting privacy and civil liberties, while accomplishing what you need to know, which is to give you those alerts that convey your status to others and other status to you so that you know, when you're navigating the environment, what is out there. And that Personal safety, I think, is probably going to be very, very important to tie to the notion that we all want to get out from underneath these controls, get out from underneath a lockdown and return to some normal life. But we don't want to do that and have a rebound and then be put back into a lockdown for an indefinite period, which is what we're seeing happen in Singapore. We're seeing it happen in other places, certainly within China. We're seeing this across Hubei province. And, uh, people can be told pretty dramatically. If you don't have this system in control, you're at risk of getting very sick and possibly, uh, dying or infecting members of your family. The other thing about this is the nature of the virus itself. This is a very insidious virus. We know half of the transmission in many instances is by people who are not symptomatic, may not know their status. And that's a particularly difficult problem. And it's a very, very fast moving virus. And it has a certain lethality that makes it very dangerous, but it's not so high that it actually burns out its population. It's going to be circulating. The virus is going to be circulating in our population for a long time. This is a long game, but we don't want to succumb to it and just lock ourselves in our houses indefinitely. We need to find some creative pathways out.
0: It's also might not be the last virus we deal with.
2: Oh, I'm sure it's not. And and until we get to a vaccine or until we get to herd immunity, which means that, say, over 90 percent of our population has been infected with this, which is not what I would wish. But a vaccine is at least 18 months out and then getting it distributed universally among Americans. So we have this period in time, which could be longer than 18 months, could be three years or five years. We need to be thinking how do we get these kind of technological, localized screening and surveillance and follow-up so that as we get outbreaks, we get cluster outbreaks, we can chase them down very rapidly and arrest them, isolate those, do the contact tracing. And these sort of mobile apps are gonna be very instrumental in all of that processing.
1: So on that last point that Steve made, I mean, you know, one way to do it is just to suppose someone tests positive and you're like, okay, tell us all the people you were in contact with in the last, you know, two weeks or 16 days. I mean, it's very hard for people to remember that, right? But if there's, if you have an app on your phone that has stored your contacts, then, you know, there is a, that's a much more efficient way of doing that. That's the first point. The second is You know, Steve mentioned some of the other cases in Asia. We look at Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea. Sure, you know, all of them have used some form of mobile technology for contact tracing. All of these places went fairly early in terms of responding to the virus. And all of them moved fairly quickly in terms of, you know, getting stuff ready. Like in South Korea's case, it took them two weeks after the first case them to start rolling test kits, you know, off the production line. And three weeks after the first case, they developed the mobile app. But the point of all this is to say, you know, here we are, the United States. We did not move early. We did not move quickly. We don't have universal testing. We don't have a vaccine. You know, that doesn't leave us with many choices if our goal is to reopen, at least partially, after the peak, right? And so that you know, again, this goes to the to the larger point about inevitability, if we don't have any of those other things, and we want to reopen, then I think this becomes inevitable in some form, maybe it's localized, as, as Steve said, and maybe one can find a neutral, trusted, central um, party that can hold the data. But, you know, absent all those other things, which we have either have not yet achieved or have not done, this is about the only thing that we're left with, frankly.
2: And yep. but Victor, just let me add one very important point to what, what you just laid out. Because we came to our senses so late, and we came so poorly equipped in terms of testing and provision of key inputs in the like, now we have a country that's suffused with virus. We have 600,000 confirmed cases. We have 25,000 deaths. And those numbers are going up. And most people that you talk to say the assumption is, the assumption last week was that we had likely a million, a million cases. Um, and that number is growing. So the true reality of how much virus is among within our population is unknown, but it is very, very, very large. So we have to live with that reality. We're playing catch up here. And the problem has scaled. We're a country of 327 million people with a lot of virus in our population and all states and territories are under lockdown right now. A field force of contact tracers of 100,000 spread over a country of 327 million. That's a pretty thin volume. We need to look for, for solutions that can help multiply our efforts and scale. And that's why I think people are looking so hard at these technological fixes. They're not proven yet. In the way that they need to be and so there's going to be a lots and lots of pilots and tests and experimentation
0: so steve when do you think that this discussion is going to be elevated to the american people because right now what we're all talking about is discussions about whether the states are going to reopen or the federal government president's going to say, you know, it's time to reopen. And by the way, Americans want to know when can we go back to the beach? Are we going to have an NFL season where we can all sit in the stands? Is the NBA going to reconvene? You know, we're not talking about publicly large discussion about giving up our privacy and registering our phones and letting um, some entity know where all of our movements and all of our contacts are going to be.
2: You know, if you get infected with this virus and you, you come down with a COVID-19 illness and you recover, you'll have some level of immunity. Exactly how much immunity, we don't know. We don't know how long it lasts and how, how full the coverage is. But under the best of scenarios, And when we get to the other side of the peak, when we get on the downside of this pandemic in the United States, probably we will have no higher than one to 2% of the population carrying immunity. So that is another argument why we'll have a very vulnerable population that could be infected and could suffer from this and which requires a solution. Now, in terms of your question about how do we engage the American people? Well, clearly, the debate has begun because you go to uh, any of the cable stations or news news outlets that are covering all of this there's just a proliferation of coverage of these matters in the and and those who are paying attention and i think a lot of americans are paying attention are beginning to read about this and to read about the debates and think about it and think about what's the package of local solutions and the like so the debate is fully on and Obviously, this is the story in the, in the United States and in the world, and this has become one of the most important emerging issues in that debate as this pandemic evolves. But I also would think that the leaders in this response, the governors and the mayors in particular, are going to be integral to forming up advisory councils, holding public fora, communicating with their constituents, seeking their input doing surveys, trying to show a great deal of consultation, listening, consideration and engagement and trying to communicate clearly, this is what we're trying to do. And this is how you're going to be protected. Both your safety will be protected and your health, but also your civil liberties. And we're balancing all of these off in order to get to the next phase.
0: Victor is anybody in our government whether it's in the congressional level or the federal level or the state level talking to South Korea about their programs and their arsenal of things that they've done to try to contain the virus
1: oh yeah I think they have uh, they have been doing that I've met and briefed several members you know who are quite interested in this you know many of them are looking at the same questions that Steve is talking about in terms of how practically can we start to reopen after the peak? And what are some of the things that we need to consider besides what we're doing now, besides waiting for a vaccine, uh, trying to expand the testing regime and social distancing? What else can we do? And so naturally, I think it leads to, to this discussion. I think there's still a great deal of skepticism. I think Americans naturally, they're reflexively. Uh, react negatively to the idea of Big Brother watching over you in some, in some fashion. So there's going to be a socialization process that needs to take place. I'm worried that with the president sort of benchmarking May 1st, there's not enough time for the American public to socialize to this, which is why I think Steve's point about sort of local solutions, governors, mayors, others sort of stepping into the breach. And perhaps they're more trusted figures at that level than there are At the national level, um, to help socialize folks to this, but that's very important, and we're operating on a very—you know—if the president's talking about May first, we we're not talking about a lot of time between now and then.
0: Is there widespread trust among the Korean people with the government and how it's been handled?
1: So I think you know there was (laughs) there was a comment I can't remember who it was, but an administration official when they were asked about the South Korean case and how they're all wearing face masks and they have these apps on their phones. And she said something like, well, yeah, they can do that because they're not really a democracy, which was hilarious to me because, I mean, Korea is not only a democracy, the people, they actually impeached the last president. Like yeah, a- that's true. They actually <laughs> right. rose up and got the previous president thrown out of office. So Right. They're like a hyper-democracy, not just... Not... Quite a lot of accountability there. Right. <laughs> but so I think, I mean, there are a couple of things here. First, I think that obviously it's a smaller population. The national government can probably organize much better than the federal government can can do here. I think that's one. The other is that South Korean society has been much more conditioned to pandemics than the American public, right? Because... I mean, mayor the Middle East respiratory syndrome. Steve will know this very well. In 2015, was another coronavirus in which the government did not respond well, and they learned a lot of lessons from that in terms of shortage of PPE, shortage of masks, these sorts of things. So, and then you have, you know, you have SARS, you have all these viruses, pandemics um, that I think make the South Korean public more socialized to the idea of there's a pandemic, we need to organize, we need to try to find a way um, to contain this. Having said that though, I mean, there still is a lot of resistance. I mean, particularly to the sort of applications where there is a, uh, you know, the health ministry is like actively tracking you. To just give you a very simple example, one of our staff went back to Korea, she's a US citizen. She had to go to a quarantine facility, you know, had, you know, this the app on her phone, she stuck her head out the door of her room into the hallway, and she got a phone call saying, stick your head back in the door, you know? So, wow. I mean, I think that's sort of big brother locating that we've seen that used in Korea. And I think there are people certainly in the United States who would be very resistant to this. But some of the other ideas that Apple and Google and and some of the apps that they've used in Singapore don't so proactively track location of people, but really focus on collecting contacts. And as Steve said, if that's anonymized, if it's encrypted, you know if it's something that with consent, you can turn that over to a central authority, that might be more amenable to an American public that inherently you know reacts negatively to anything having to do with invasion of privacy.
2: We're also starting serological surveys in order to try and determine um, who has been infected and who may now be immune and uh, as those surveys are rolled out across the country it's going to generate a lot of data uh, for individuals who will be able to be personally certified as carrying immunity and that's the sort of certification that you could that you would need to prove to people in various forms and could be carried with you and and that's another very important dimension of what's going to be happening in this next phase on the question of how to win trust and confidence of people, the issue of privacy in the use of your mobile devices is not a new issue. We've been working our way through this for the last 15 years. And uh, this is our population is not naive to these considerations. I think our population is very sophisticated about the use of these devices and they simply want to know what is going to change and how is it going to change. And they want to be part of a consultation a new compact and negotiation in terms of what parties need to be brought to the table and rally around solutions. Obviously the faith community, the legal community, employers and unions, health providers. And we need to be very, very careful that we're not disadvantaging those workers who are now unprotected on many of the service jobs We don't want to be disadvantaging poor people or people of color who are suffering disproportionately from this disease. I think the use introduction of these technologies is going to have to be hypersensitive to what is happening in our society where we're seeing gross inequities in the protections that have been afforded to people.
1: The only thing I'll add on the serological surveys is I I completely agree. I mean, that's another element of a path to reopening that the United States and others have to go down. But again, I feel like we're so far behind on that. You know, I teach at a university. We don't know if we're going to be able to get back on campus and if we're not on campus now, we don't know if we're going to be able to get back on campus in the fall. If we could do immunity testing and determine who could come back to campus in the fall, that that would be great. But again, I just feel like we're not there you know, we have a long way to go on these things, which again goes back to the point of what can we do to make everybody feel safer and more secure in an environment when we're starting to open up.
0: Gentlemen, thank you for this amazing hybrid episode of The Truth of the Matter and The Impossible State. Fascinating discussion. Thanks to both of you.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew.